Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Doctor's Kitchen. Recipes, health, lifestyle we recognize it for ourselves as well after you have eaten something from a fast food one hour later you're already you already feel hunger again that's that's and re- this study really shows how well that 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 the satiety signal is is much less still you see so many people going on a diet but just healthy eating is one of the fragments one of the elements you can do yourself for healthy living actually it's not the solution for obesity only dieting only eating healthy it's it much more is necessary if you are really living with obesity already welcome to the doctor's kitchen podcast the show about food lifestyle medicine and how to improve your health today I'm Dr. Rupi, your host. I'm a medical doctor. I study nutrition and I'm a firm believer in the power of food and lifestyle as medicine. Join me and my expert guests where we discuss the multiple determinants of what allows you to lead your best life. Fat, this curious, wonderful, and often misunderstood organ is the subject of today's podcast with Professor Lisbeth Van Rosem and Dr. Marriott Boone, authors of the incredible book, Fat, The Secret Organ. And yes, it is an organ. Professor Lisbeth Van Rosem is an internist endocrinologist at the Erasmus University Medical Center, Rotterdam. She's also co-founder of the Obesity Center and has an internationally leading position in the field of obesity and biological stress research. Dr. Marriott Boone is an internal medicine specialist in training and her research performed at the Leiden University focuses on fat metabolism. And honestly, today's conversation is a whirlwind running through a fantastic variety of topics all to do with fat. You're going to learn about why fat is in an organ, what why fat is an organ, I should say, what mechanisms drive hunger and satiety, how you can stimulate satiety to eat less, why stress can cause fat, why liposuction unfortunately does not work, the number and size of fat cells and if they change throughout your life, as well as fat on inflammation, immune health and fertility. It is an incredible conversation and their book, Fat, The Secret Organ, is a must read for anyone interested in this subject. We didn't get time to deep dive into some of the other topics in their book, such as the evidence-based lifestyle recommendations, but 
I highly recommend you get a copy um, and I think you're going to find today's conversation super, super useful. Remember, you can join the newsletter where I share three things to help you live a healthier, happier life every single week. Something to eat, read or listen to. And you get a free seven day meal plan as well when you sign up at thedoctorskitchen.com. For now, here is my conversation with Professor Lisbeth and Dr. Marriott Boone. Professor, Doctor, thank you so much for joining me in the podcast today. It's a pleasure to have you both here. I notice in both of your biographies, I believe, Lisbeth, you are an athletics fanatic. Is that right? Oh, that's right. Yes, I love love long jump and I love sprinting, but I'm not a long distance, not an endurance athlete, to be honest. (laughs) I've tried to be endurance myself in the past, actually. Like I've done a half marathon, but I've never completed a marathon. Yeah, I think a marathon is a bit, bit pushing it for me. I admire that so much people who are able to run a marathon, a half a marathon. I really, I, I really like to, 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 uh, um, to, to stand in the, in, in the audience and, and shout it and help them. But well, 100 meters is for me more than enough. And long jump over 30 minutes, uh, 30 meters uh, is, is already long enough. I like the, the reactive and, and, and the high speed athletics. Yeah, yeah. Definitely, definitely. Those uh, fast muscle uh, twitch fibers. And, and Mariette, you, uh, you're a tennis uh, fan as well. Oh, yes. Currently, I am more into watching the tennis. But <laughs> <laughs> also, of course, due to the corona regulations, it's more difficult to, uh, to play it yourself. But yeah, I really love to play tennis. Also, as, as Lisbeth mentioned, the, the very uh, fast uh, movements, I really like that. Yeah. Yeah, brilliant, brilliant. Well, I mean, your book is absolutely fantastic. We were talking a bit about um, before the show started recording about how the book is being used uh, in in policy decisions uh, across both medicine as well as uh, people who don't have a medical background being able to access it. I think it's fantastically written. My question to start off with is um, how you guys both came to uh, obesity and everything to do with fat as a research area yourselves where where was that interest peaked for for you both yeah for me it already started i guess during my um medical study um myself i am um yeah i, I used to be very thin always and i didn't really understand why i that fascinated me because i always ate, i always eat a lot um, I also exercise a lot, but that that really intrigues me. And the other way around intrigues me as well. How 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 can it be that some people um, so easily can gain weight? How does it work? And yeah, that really um, started my interest for this research area. And it well, it it, ne- it never let go of me. Yeah, I think for me it also started du- during uh, math school already. I think in the nineties uh, I was also doing athletics then, and some people had, were very just in in a few trainings they they started to to gain muscle mass and some still kept a layer of fat and actually uh my my mother was overweight and she was always busy with dieting and and you know she was cooking healthy for the rest of the family but she was always in weird kind of dieting and later on and i understood there were some underlying causes um, making her fat and 
Um, and then in the 90s, when I was in med, med school, then, then the leptin was just discovered. And I won an award to go to the US doing at the University of Maryland and Johns Hopkins University, doing some research there. And there, a whole field um, appeared to me that it's so, such an interesting world that, that obesity is really complex and that fat is an organ secreting hormones. I mean, that was so fascinating. And then I understood when I went back to the Netherlands and finished my studies. Well, I, I said, uh, we have to do more with concerning research here. Yeah, no, it's absolutely fascinating. And, and, and right at the start of the book, what I really appreciated was um, the history surrounding fat and how uh, it's more recently transitioned from something that we saw, thought as something as desirable to something that is sort of like public enemy number one, but also throughout uh, the stages of our evolution, how important and necessary fat was. Um, I wonder if we can talk briefly about that sort of uh, the, the anthropological uh, aspect of, of fat. Yeah, that that's, that really fascinates me as well, because, of course, the evolutionary purpose of our body fat is it, it, it is a large uh, storage organ for um, for nutrients. And well, our ancestors did not always have access to food. So, yeah, we, we are really, um, as humans, dependent on our fat stores. Um, so we have enough fat stores um, to go without food for about 40 or 50 days, uh, depending on how much you, you move, uh, of course. Um, but it's, it's a very important store. So it was really appreciated uh, by our ancestors. And there are already, there is some art, uh, some, some small statues mm -hmm. of a woman. Uh, we also uh, show that in the book of a woman who has, well, a lot of body fat. And that was really appreciated. It's sort of the white gold in your body. Um, and as you mentioned, also um, during the 17th, 18th century, it was sort of, well, when you had a lot of money, you could buy a lot of food. Um, you had a very big posture that was really appreciated. But indeed, in the 20th century, it became clear that well, it is unhealthy to have too much fat. Mm. And um, from that on, it was seen as, as more of an enemy. And also, Previously, people who had a lot of fat were thought to be kind. Uh, they they were described also in literature back then. They were they were jolly jolly fat people. They were very kind. And later on, that shifted. They mm. were they were dumb. They were uh, well uh, not kind at all. And well, that that that's really uh, really fascinating. I think. Yeah, yeah, no, it's very interesting to see that and how uh, art and culture and literature has, has sort of changed the perspective that we have of people of different weight categories um, and aesthetic categories as well. I, I wonder, I mean, the, the, the title of the book, the subtitle is The Secret Organ. And this whole concept of fat being an organ, I think, is relatively new. Um, Lisbeth, uh, can you describe about what we, we mean by fat being an organ? Yeah, I think it's important that um, people indeed realize that it, that's an active hormone producing hormone, uh, organ. Um, more than, than hundreds of hormones are being produced in the fat, but also all kinds of substances which are important, for example, the immune system. And there's a great communication between the fat mass, uh, communication between the brain, between other organs, also the intest intestines. Um, and 
to, to realize that it's an organ, you can easily also understand that when you have too much fat, that that's a disease, that the whole communication between the organ fat and the, the brain, for example, is disturbed. And it's crucial. This communication is so important because... Um, so, so too much fat is is basically making you sick, sick, like and and uh, also a heart or liver uh, can be sick, but also your fat can be sick, and it's um, also now in in Europe it's being called a chronic relapsing disease, and that's important because once your fat is sick, um, it it's. The, the body becomes sort of reprogrammed that if you have a high weight, that the body wants always to go up to the higher weight again. And therefore, the, 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 the um, combating obesity is so, so uh, um, hard. And at the same time, it's also called a gateway disease because 230 complications have been described from obesity. And the most known, of course, are type 2 diabetes, cardiovascular disease, um, but also uh, 13 forms of cancer, for example, are obesity-related. Um, depression, because also these inflammatory factors can also signal to the brain. And also these hormones, they give also brain disturbances, mood disorders. Infertility can exist, joint complaints. But also more severe course of infections, for example, like we see nowadays with, with COVID-19. Um, so those are the most known uh, complications, but there are so many more. So it's both a gateway disease to other diseases, but when you have too much fat itself, it becomes, it changes it, uh, uh, within the communication between fat and brain and other organs. So that's really um, important to, to realize. Mm, yeah. And and I, in, in the book, you, you also talk about um, how... Some people have too little fat um, as well. There's a, 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 a curious, throughout the whole book, you've got examples and patient stories, I think, which are really helpful to contextualize everything. So can you go through some of the descriptions of how people actually suffer from conditions where they have too little fat? Because I think most people are aware of why too much fat is a bad thing. Um, but perhaps the other side of things is, is lesser known. Well, we do describe in the book, it, it is very rare, though, that, that you have uh, a certain condition in which you don't have any subcutaneous fat. Mm. Um, and that can also be very uh, unhealthy because, um, as Lisbeth mentioned in the beginning, um, our fat produces hundreds of hormones and one of them is leptin. And when you don't have any subcutaneous fat, um, your leptin levels are really low. And leptin is a crucial hormone in, well for all kinds of processes in the body. And that makes it, can make it very dangerous. And also when you don't have any subcutaneous fat, where do you have to store your fat? This will be stored in other organs like the liver, like the heart, and these organs start to uh, malfunction. So therefore you, you do need uh, your, you do need <laughs> your body fat. Um, but what is much more known is, um, of course, the disease uh, anorexia nervosa, where people have a, a very little body fat or people who have little body fat for other reasons. And well, that can also be unhealthy because of this hormone uh, leptin, because um, leptin is produced. Um, well, when you have a lot of body fat, a lot of leptin is produced. And when you have little body fat, only little uh, leptin is produced. Um, and when the amount of leptin is low, this, this has several consequences because in women, a certain amount of leptin is needed for women to keep menstruating. Mm. 
So this happens via a connection of leptin uh, to the fertility center uh, in the brain. So then women stop menstruating and it has been studied that women need about 17% of body fat to keep menstruating. And it is also very important um, leptin for uh, the function of our immune cells. So too little fat can also result in various serious infections and also more fragile bones. So this, I think, uh, well, really illustrates the importance of our body fat. You, you cannot go without it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think I, I don't think many people have really thought about um, it from the uh, perspective of your immune system uh, and fertility as well. And, and I guess just to take it a step backwards, um, let's talk a bit about those hormones, leptin, ghrelin, where they're produced, how they're produced, what, what they're produced in, in response to those, those hunger hormones. How, how does that network work? Yeah, I think it's 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 good also to realize that we make a lot of food choices a, ba- a day. Over two hundred food choices we mo- make, and by far the majority is unconscious. And indeed, these these hunger hormones and satiety hormones they, they play a big role in that. And for example, if if you get hungry and, and your your stomach is empty, um, your hunger hormone ghrelin is being produced from the stomach, and it makes you you extra hungry and. Then you, when you start eating, also uh, your satiety hormones, basically most of them in, in, in the intestines, are, are being produced in response to, to, to food intake. Um, and they signal to the brain and they give you feelings of fullness. Um, so, so it's not only we always think we stop eating because the stomach is being stretched and then we stop eating. Um, what well, it's part of the story, though, because of the, the vagal nerve, the signal to the brain. But a large part of your satiety, feeling full, is, is determined by satiety hormones. And that's really important um, because they can be disturbed if you have too much fat, for example. This communication is being disturbed. Um, also, from the fat, we have the hormone leptin. Uh, and leptin is, is, have, has um, um, uh, multiple functions, actually. It's, it's an acute hormone. It can inhibit food intake, stimulate metabolism, which is really important uh, as acute effects. But at the same time, it's also a deposity marker. So it's basically a sort uh, scale of uh, how much fat do you have in, in, the, bori- in the body as storage. Um, and this feeling full, you, you, um, sometimes you're really full by your, your satiety hormones. We call that a homeostatic system and you can be really full, but you can sometimes really eat through it though. Uh, for example, when something is really delicious, like a dessert, for example, if you have a major Christmas dinner and you had meals, and, but somehow this dessert still fits. Um, and that is um, through a different system. We call it the hedonic system. So it's basically your reward system, which also is related to the hypothalamus, which is the major center in the brain regulating uh, all these hormones. It's receiving hormones, but it's also sending signals. Um, and the hedonic system is, is involving uh, other neurotransmitters like dopamine and serotonin, and they make you feel uh, very comfortable. If you eat a dessert, you just like it so much, and then this center is is active. So uh, through this center, you th- th- that's the reason that the dessert still fits, although you your satiety hormones are are on. But um, you can actually influence this, and and this happens happens all day actually if if we are walking outside for example to a central station and we take a train 
all around us, the food environment is with posters or smells of delicious things which are not healthy, like donuts or anything. Um, you can try it yourself right now. If if you imagine maybe now a large chocolate bar being just in front of you right right now, and if you really think of it, and you start to get hungry, maybe you should visualize it now, um, and, and then automatically also your your hunger hormone ghrelin will be uh, produced, but also your insulin, for example, will be produced. And if insulin is being produced, your blood glucose will go lower your sugar in your blood will the levels will go lower and then you get sort of craving for something sweet and when we then would go out for for uh to to grab something to eat we are much more prone to take something sweet than maybe a healthy uh, uh healthy piece of bread or anything um because we are so, sort of programmed to take this sweet already so that that's what what influence it? so we can influence it ourselves, but our environment is also influencing it heavily. And I I think a very good example of that is also the the very um, famous um, uh, mind over milkshake experiment. Um, and and that that seems almost magical that our thoughts uh, can also influence, for example, our ghrelin levels. Um, this experiment is is cons- uh, is being performed by a psychologist at Yale University. Um, they gave uh, 46 research participants a milkshake and it contained uh, 380 kilocalories. And half of the participants were told that it was a a high-calorie milkshake uh, with 620 uh, calories. And the other half, they were told it was a sensible milkshake with only 140 calories. And then the researchers took blood from the participants at various time points to measure their ghrelin levels. And and then in between the two uh, blood groups, the the participants had to examine and to evaluate this basically incorrect uh, milkshake label. Um, then when they were asked to drink the milkshake and to reevaluate it, and then uh, there was really striking. The analysis showed that the mindset of the people who believed they had been given a high caloric uh, milkshake that resulted in a sharp drop of their ghrelin levels. But in contrast, the ghrelin levels of those who believed they had drunk a much lighter version of the shake, they, they remained virtually unchanged. Uh, so, so likewise, the, the physical reaction with respect to the, the hunger hormone ghrelin was more strongly associated with the number of calories uh, thought they had consumed than, than actually the, the actual calories. Um, so actually, these researchers concluded from the effect of our food on ghrelin uh, that it's that's probably mediated by the mind. Um, so I think it's so interesting that our mindset can influence our response also to food. And I, I think that that's also what, what's going on right now in, in, in our food environment. That is absolutely fascinating. I, I, I love that description of the experiment. And, and just for listeners to, to think about like how much, how many different pathways are involved in satiety and appetite regulation. We have leptin and ghrelin uh, being released from various uh, uh, places, whether it be your stomach or your fat cells. Then you have the mechanical uh, receptors, which is the stretching of your digestive organs, which also has an uh, an impact on your uh, hormone release, your hedonic pathway, as well as the perception of what you're eating as well. 
Um, I mean, all these things interplay into whether we overeat, whether we eat healthier items. You have a lovely checklist, I think, in the um, in the book about how you can influence your own feelings of satiety. I, I wonder if we could talk about that for a second. Yeah, well, th th that's indeed very interesting because you can trick that um, in so many ways. Um, as Lisbeth mentioned, there are a lot of pathways uh, that eventually result in feeling of satiety. Um, what is also produced after you have eaten a meal um, are intestinal hormones, so mm -hmm. even more hormones. And one of the intestinal hormones is GLP-1. Mm -hmm. And this hormone can also induce a feeling of uh, satiety. And it takes about 20 minutes um, before GLP-1 is uh, produced uh, by the intestine. And well, if you try to eat slow, if you try to chew more on your food, that makes it less likely that you will eventually eat a second plate of food because, well, you then already feel um, satiety already after your first plate. Um, what you can also do is try to eat from a smaller plate because the, well, again, the optical illusion helps you feel fuller. So you can also trick that uh, with your mind. Um, and what you can also do is choose unprocessed food products as often as possible. I think that's a very important mm -hmm. uh, one because these induce a better satiety signal um, compared to ultra-processed food, which is, well, basically in all the supermarkets lying everywhere. I, I think in addition to that, it's, it's, it's very interesting that, that Kevin Hall's group did a fascinating experience on that. It's, it's, it was a randomized controlled trial where he um, studied 20 persons with a uh, body mass index of, of 27, and th they were given... Uh, both groups exactly the same amount of food uh, with respect to calorie number, but also the, the fiber, salt, um, carbohydrates, fat, everything, the make, macronutrients were similar in two groups. But the only difference was that one group um, was been giving the ultra processed food and the other group was uh, pro uh, uh, um, unprocessed food. So basically the food you can still recognize as a cauliflower is a cauliflower and the other food is more uh, processed. And the, within two weeks, he noted they noticed that um, the group who was eating ultra-processed food, on average, uh, they eat faster and uh, 508 calories a day more than the, than the group who ate, um, was eating unprocessed. And within the two weeks also, they gained one kilogram of weight in contrast to the group who eat only unprocessed food, they, they, they lost actually one kilogram of, of uh, one kilogram of weight in, within the two weeks. And I think it's fascinating because it perfectly controls all the circumstances, which is quite unique. And of course, it's only the short term, um, but it's, it's, it's showing some maybe some causal relation between the only different uh, ultra processed processed um, unprocessed food. Because we always have discussion about kilocalories and uh, should it be low carb, low fat. And this is showing there are probably also other mechanisms. And also interesting in this experiment was that he was showing that unprocessed food, then you see a very nice uh, decrease of the hunger hormone ghrelin, which should be your hunger hormone should be decreasing if you eat um, after eating. And at the same time, one of the most important satiety hormones, the PYY, peptide YY, was increasing but this beautiful response of the body was not present when people were eating 
uh, ultra-processed food. So maybe the mechanism of eating all, too much ultra-processed food is it might be mediated by disturbing our hunger and satiety hormones. So that, that's, that's new insights, which, which were very important, I think. It's really that fascinating because fascinating. We, we recognize that for ourselves as well. After you have eaten something from a fast food, one hour later, you're already, you already feel hunger again. That's, that's, and re, this study really shows how, well, that, that, that the satiety signal is, is much less. That, it, it, that is super interesting because I think um, a lot of the discussion that you see uh, dominated on social media and even in academic forums are about different types of macronutrient profiles of food, which one is better, versus which, which one is you know uh, more scientifically valid. I always like to think about uh, Occam's razor. The simplest approach is usually going to be the most effective and probably the most truthful as well. So simply moving people along that spectrum from ultra high processed to processed to unprocessed food is likely the way we need to think about all dietary uh, approaches and, and, and the mechanisms that back up that. Uh, are like you know shown in 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 that experiment right there i mean that that for me is is a real real sort of um bold uh underlining of of the simple approach yeah i think you have a major point right now because we see now in our offices if we see patients living with obesity completely the opposite opposite happens because a lot of people are being told if you you should lose weight so go on a diet and the ones who are really eager to lose weight what do they do they do crash dieting for example lower than 800 or even 500 kilocalories and shocking about that was, I think, revolutionary research of the, the famous Sumitron uh, article from Australia showing that already after a couple of weeks of crash dieting, that people, uh, of course, they lost weight. And it doesn't matter which diet you do, if you go low and so low in the calories, you will lose weight on the short term, short term, so not, not long term, actually. But what happens is already after a couple of weeks that you that they notice that the hunger hormones increase and the satiety hormones some of the hormones which make you feel full they decreased and the shocking thing about that paper which shocked the world at that time actually that these per persons were retested more than one year later so they were already finished with their crash dieting they eat normally but still the, these disturbances were still this in the same way and when your satiety hormones are, are decreased um, well you're more basically more hungry and we also know that, that your metabolism slows down from, from uh, crash dieting. So when you're more hungry and your metabolism slows down, well, that's the perfect prescription, actually, the perfect formula to, to, to regain your weight. And that's usually what happens uh, for people. And I feel really sorry for my patients who have been doing for, for 10 times crash dieting and one even stricter than the other. And they are sort of destroying your own system. The only solution can be if you really want to do a crash diet, then you should directly after change your behavior to a healthy behavior. Then it can work, but not if you do only like a short term crash dieting and then your old behavior. That that's that's really not what 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 what's it is working and. Um, so that that's our insight. So just eating healthy is is important. We recently also did a study. People. Um, underwent a combined lifestyle intervention. So by uh, one and a half year coaching on healthy living exercise, but also cognitive behavioral therapy. 
and also their diet was just uh, as much as possible unprocessed food, normal, healthy diet. And then we noticed that these acute, most of these acute uh, hunger and satiety hormones did were not uh, disturbed actually. So there, therefore, we have more and more evidence that just healthy. It, it, it seems very clear, of course, but uh, still, you see so many people going on a diet, but just healthy eating. It's one of the fragments, one of the elements you can do yourself for healthy living. Actually, it's not the solution for obesity only, dieting only, eating healthy. It's it much more is necessary if you are really living with obesity already. But that that that's that's another story. It's one of those tools that we we need to entertain, but it's not at the expense of everything else. Because as we know, and as you talk about in your book uh, about the associations with mental health disorders, low mood, anxiety, as well as uh, a number of other physical issues too that you described earlier. Those are things that we also need to take into account. And I think it's a lovely segue into um, uh, the, the bit about inflammation and fat um, and adiponectins as well. I wonder if we can talk about adiponectins for a little while. It's a relatively new thing that people are coming across. Um, can, can we describe what those are and, and how that relates to inflammation? Yeah, actually, um, well, leptin is is one of the major fat hormones, which is basically pro-inflammatory. And adiponectin, we see it actually as a beneficial uh, hormone. It's it's with respect to inflammation, it's anti-inflammatory. Um, and what we see actually in people living with obesity, that the leptin levels are increased because it's a marker of the amount of body fat. So more pro-inflammatory. And at the same time, we see a decrease of the adiponectin, which is anti-inflammatory. And that, that this balance is really important in as one of the factors making the fat cells, which are increased in, in obesity, uh, that they are pro-inflammatory. And that is one of the major mechanisms leading to, for example, insulin, resist, uh, insulin resistance, but also cardiovascular disease, cancer, depression, all these gate, uh, gateway disease uh, uh, complications of obesity. Uh, inflammation is a major uh, uh, part in that. And therefore, also you see when people are um, decreasing their their uh, their weight, when it's either by lifestyle intervention, pharmacotherapy, or bariatric surgery, that the degree of inflammation is 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 also uh, lowering. And one of the points what we see right now is that when inflammation is um, continuously present, um, that you that also affects the immune system. And you have like two layers of immune system. You have your innate immune system. That's basically always uh, uh, that's when when you're born, it's 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 present. Um, and then you have your adaptive immune system. And if you, for example, catch a virus or a bacteria, then then the the adaptive immune system after a couple of days will recognize it and will produce, for example, antibodies against it. And both these immune systems are being disturbed in people with obesity, basically because they are too much active all the time already, uh, combating all these inflammatory uh, inflammatory factors. And then what you see is if, if people with obesity have a chronically active, overactive immune system, then when a virus is coming over it, then the immune system is not ready enough to to 
to to combat the, the the virus, for example, and and that's one of the aspects. Really, not the only one, because there are very mu uh, many other uh, uh, ways leading to more severe infections. But it's also one of the ways uh, leading to a more severe cause of, for example, COVID nineteen in in patients uh, suffering from obesity. Yeah, that's that's a really good point. And I guess to simplistically summarize, because your threshold for inflammation is so much higher already because of the leptin levels. Um, when you do need to mount an immune response, you don't have the armory essentially to fight against pathogens. So that could be one of the reasons. And then conversely, when you're dealing with a multi-system inf inflammatory disease, such as the one caused by COVID, again, that adds to your inflammatory burden as well, which can lead to a whole bunch of complications. And I, I, you mentioned this in the book. I think one person listening to this might think, okay, well, if you have these fat cells and they're all creating inflammation, why don't you just suck a few out using liposuction to reduce the number of fat cells that are producing leptin? What, what is the science around the number and the type of fat cells and, and, and the issues around that sort of simplistic argument for liposuction? Yeah, well, unfortunately, that will not work. Uh, your body <laughs> is surprisingly good at keeping the amount of fat cells constant. We don't really know how that works, but we do know that it works because... We know from, from studies that when you uh, perform liposuction and literally well, suck out fat cells, the fat cells grow back at a different place. So in, in part of the women who have undergone liposuction, we see that um, yeah, well, fat cells grow back in, in the breast, for example. It's not always a really bad thing for everybody, but it, it, it shows that your body really wants to keep the fat cells constant. So it, it, it does, well, it, it will not work by um, removing fat cells. Yeah, and actually the fat cells itself, when you're, you're getting obese, then, then the fat cells grow and they, when you lose weight, they, they bec become smaller. But you, the number of fat cells is constant. So it's fascinating that the body is doing that. And the, the good news about the immune system, actually, if, if one of the ways, rather than liposuction, one of the ways to, to, to decrease, for example, this inflammation is, for example, a combined lifestyle intervention. We, we recently showed in a study where people who are living with obesity lost weight, and it was really only about 5%, so not spectacular. Afterwards, they were has had still obesity, but already after a couple of weeks, by exercising more, not extremely, but, but normal exercising, eating healthy and uh, psychological therapy, then already this innate and adaptive immune system, uh, we, we saw better regulation. Uh, um, and also after one and a half years on so the long time, these improvements uh, continued. So you can do something about this pro-inflammatory pro status yourself. Uh, uh, or, and I think in, in pandemics like with viruses, it's also important to realize that within a couple of weeks, you can already do something about your health and protect yourself naturally for, uh, with, with respect to the immune system by just living healthy. And you don't have to, to reach a, a healthy weight, but a healthier weight is already uh, good. Yeah, I think yeah. what Lisbeth uh, stresses is really important. The fact that already losing 5 to 10% of your body weight is really healthy. Some people think, well, I have to lose so much kilos. It will never work. Uh, but but really, it, it's important that when you lose 5 to 10%, not only your immune system um, uh, improves, but also your uh, glucose metabolism already uh, can markedly improve uh, after losing 5 to 10% of body weight. So... 
well, that that I think that that changes the way you can set goals for yourself. Yeah, this is already yeah, a very good first goal. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and just you know having those small sustainable goals uh, in mind rather than these drastic sort of um, calorie cutting exercises where you have these uh, incredible transformations that you see within sixty days. Although it might seem desirable to a lot of people, it's not necessarily uh, at the healthiest intervention, particularly when you follow those people up for twelve months and you see a weight resetting and and it leads to yo-yo dieting. And I think also that the the impact of um, those healthier lifestyle interventions, not just on fat composition, but also on immune system and the capabilities for you to fight off infections, I think, again, should be another sort of hook for people to to think about with, with these health uh, uh, healthy lifestyle changes. Um, you, you mentioned uh, the, the fat cell number and um, the, the size of those and how those, those change. Uh, and, and the curious sort of observation that we see where you remove fat cells and they pop up somewhere else. What determines um, the distribution of fat? Um, I think some people have come across the concept of apple shapes versus pear-shaped uh, bodies. Is there a is there a particular component, uh, maybe something genetic that determines people's sizes and shapes? Yeah, actually, the, the the amount of body fat and how prone you are to to develop obesity is is most of that in your genes anyway. It's actually surprising right now. You see, in in Europe, almost six sixty percent uh, has. Uh, is is overweight right now but when you consider the environment it's it's surprising that not, not almost 100% is 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 overweight because um the majority of the people is not living healthy right now so some people are protected from developing obesity and some are more prone to obesity so that's in general but then where where the fat is stored is indeed also for a part already uh, uh genetic genetically uh, determined for example if if it uh when fat is stored around the waist, um, that's even more gen- genetically determined, but also other influences like uh, hormonal influences. We see uh, that, that for, uh, as, as known that males store fat more easily around their abdominal region and uh, women more on, the sub- subcutane- on their hips, for example, subcutaneous fat, which is uh, basically healthy. We know the visceral fat in the abdominal region is more the unhealthy fat, producing more of these infl- pro-inflammatory factors in hormones. Um, but also during life, you see that with aging, that women, uh, when they uh, are postmenopausal, they change also their estrogens and, and testosterone balance. Yes, women also have testosterone. They produce it in their adrenal uh, glands and their ovaries. Um, but their ovaries obviously are uh, not working anymore after the, the, uh, the menopause. And you see alterations in their hormonal balances and they are also more prone to develop abdominal obesity after menopause. Um, and another important factor can be medication use or the stress hormone cortisol, which makes you also more store fat around the abdominal region. And so there are many more factors also helping to determine where the fat is being stored. And you see it also in, in families that 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 that, that that uh, just as height is uh, partly genetically determined it also weight and where you store your your fat is um there's a high polygenetic f- factor around that 
I was interested to know actually that uh, there is a cortisol sensitive gene variant, um, which gives people a particular propensity towards stress induced fat as well. That's something I haven't come across before. Yeah, actually, there was actually the, the topic of my PhD thesis. That's interesting because it, we know that too much of the stress hormone cortisol, um, it does not only cause more abdominal fat in general, but it also causes that you are um, longing for more high caloric food, more hungry, but especially high caloric food. So maybe you will recognize it if you're very stressed that you rather grab a chocolate bar than maybe a healthy apple. Um, and also sugar-rich foods can also um, increase your stress hormone cortisol. So sometimes like a visual circle can exist, uh, either starting by stress, making you more hungry or starting to eat unhealthy and contributing to higher cortisol levels. So that's in general. But we know that some people lose weight from being stressed and some people from chronically being stressed, they, they gain weight. And actually the majority is gaining weight. And part of that is indeed being also genetically determined we, because cortisol needs a receptor, so a sort of receiver, um, which is present on basically every cell in our body. And this a receptor of cortisol can be either hypersensitive, relatively more sensitive, or you can a bit, little bit be decreased sensitive for your own cortisol. And what we found in studies is that about um, 40, 45% of the population, of the Western population, is uh, relatively more sensitive to, the, to your own stress hormone cortisol and we indeed found relations with a more abdominal fat mass, uh, higher blood pressure, higher cholesterol level, uh, higher cholesterol levels. Um, and in contrast, about six to maybe 10% is relatively insensitive for, uh, for cortisol. And indeed, those are people who become on average uh, taller. Uh, in males, we found more muscle mass. In uh, women, we found a smaller waist circumference and, and protection uh, or a relationship with lower insulin, lower cholesterol levels, uh, but also lower risk on dementia, for example. So some are more prone to, to suffer from stress hormone than others. Maybe they experience the same amount of stress, um, but, but how the signal is being translated at the cellular level can be different per person. That is fascinating. I, I really find that interesting because uh, someone's uh, response to stress can be in part genetically determined as to whether this is going to have a beneficial or a, a negative impact on your physiology. And um, I, I read also that it has effect on uh, brown fat as well and the metabolism within brown fat. And that leads me on to talk about brown fat because uh, I, I think people have heard uh, through the ether that brown fat is something that is good. But I wonder if we could talk about how brown fat was discovered um, and why it's it's beneficial. Marriott, maybe you can. Yeah, well, brown fat was actually the topic of my PhD thesis. Oh, lovely. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know this going. before. This is yeah, working yeah. very well. <laughs> <laughs> very well done. Um, so, well, it was discovered. Um, well, we know for ages that it is already present in, um, in certain animals and also in babies. And well, first, what brown fat basically does is it's, it's sort of an internal heater. So it's a type of fat, but it only stores a little fat. What it mainly does is it burns fat towards heat. 
So it's well an internal heater. And the main um, well, physiological stimulus to activate brown fat is cold. So our ancestors also needed a lot of brown fat because they were not only exposed to a lot of hunger, but also to a lot of cold. Um, so next to our muscles, we have this uh, brown fat organ uh, to keep ourselves warm. Well, we know that uh, also babies have a lot of brown fat because they have a relatively large head uh, from which they can lose a lot of uh, heat. Uh, so therefore, they are really dependent on their brown fat to keep themselves warm because babies uh, don't have that, that much uh, muscle. So they cannot really, uh, really shiver. And we thought until about 15 years ago that, well, the brown fat disappears when we uh, grow older because, well, we have our muscle, we don't need it anymore. Um, but it appeared from certain, um, well, nuclear uh, studies um, that we still have brown fat. So in nuclear medicine, um, when we are looking for cancer in people, we can uh, give people a, a tracer, a radioactively labeled um, glucose uh, like um, label and this glucose is taken up by organs that have a very large metabolism such as cancer cells and in that way when you give that tracer to people well when it's taken up by certain spots in the body you can um, well you can see that that can be either cancer or it can be either inflammation and it appeared about 15 years ago that when people um, uh, received um, this type of uh, what well, because you give that tracer followed by a PET scan and that people, when they got this PET scan in winter times, there were whole strokes of uptake of glucose in the neck and uh, along the large vessels. Well, that could not be cancer, of course. So they took a biopsy of it and then it appeared that it were actually yeah, sort of fat cells. And then, um, then it was known that we still have brown fat. So that's, that's really interesting because, of course, in, uh, in, in the current um, epidemic of obesity, it should be, it, it is so fascinating that we apparently have well, another type of fat uh, that if you activate it, you can increase your metabolism. So we have done a lot of studies um, where we cold expose people and we yeah. really see that when you expose people to cold that their metabolism increases and that also their brown fat gets activated. And while well, we estimate that um, when you activate your brown fat maximally, that you can uh, yeah, approximately um, burn 200 to 300 kilocalories per day extra. But well, you can imagine, of course, that when it is day after day after day, that can, that can really have an, uh, have an impact. So, um, we also know from studies that when people um, are um, uh, sitting in a room for two hours per day um, of about 16 degrees, which is not even that cold, um, they can uh, um, lose a bit of fat mass uh, already after six weeks. Um, so, so one of the ways by which you can activate your brown fat yourself is to, well, to, to turn down the heater, um, at home or to exercise uh, outside in the cold. Um, and there are also certain uh, foods uh, that can activate your brown fat. For instance, in um, red peppers, there is um, the substance capsaicins. <laughs> and this uh, can also activate your brown fat. And possibly that um, uh, is the cause that you feel so uh, heat after you have eaten right, yeah. a hot pepper. A hot pepper, okay. Are there any other foods? Well, there are some studies uh, suggesting that coffee uh, ah. also uh, activates your uh, your brown fat. 
Yeah. And possibly many more to discover. And, and with those studies that you performed uh, yourself, how long were you cold exposing people and, and what mechanisms were you using to, to cold expose them? Well, what we, we usually cold expose people for two hours before they undergo uh, the PET scan I, uh, I told about. Mm. And we use uh, cooling blankets that are also ah. used uh, at the intensive care to mm. um, pull down people. So people are sort of sandwiched between um, mattresses uh, and uh, between these mattresses, uh, cold water is flowing. With that method, it's really cold. Yeah, I was going to say, it, sound, it doesn't sound very comfortable. <laughs> really strong stimulus to, uh, to activate brown fat. Yeah. I've, I've also heard, and you may have come across this through your PhD as well, that um, cyclists uh, tend to have more brown fat as well. Is there a particular reason as to why that's the case? Well, in humans, we are not really sure whether exercise um, increases your brown fat. In, in mice, it seems so. Um, mm. In mice, we know that the brown fat, uh, no, I must say, in mice, we know that um, when mice exercise, the muscles make certain hormones, and these hormones can activate brown fat. In humans, it's more difficult. Um, there have been studies in which humans um, uh, had to do an exercise intervention for several weeks. But the difficult part is that when you do a lot of exercise, your body composition changes. You get less subcutaneous fat, um, you get more muscle, and that changes the whole way by which your body um, uh, produces heat. So what we basically see is that people who exercise a lot tend to have a, a little less brown fat because they have so much muscle that they yeah, possibly, therefore, they don't need their brown fat so much. So we are not sure yet. Mm, mm. That is that's super exciting to know. And I guess, you know, a little bit of cold exposure by not wearing your coat and going out for a quick walk couldn't, couldn't be a bad thing. No. And the other thing is cold exposure does a lot more a beneficial, uh, has a lot of more beneficial effects. Not only does it activate brown fat, but also when you when the cold exposure is to such an extent that you shiver a bit, mm. um, you also have a lot of muscle activity, of course. And um, there has been a very nice study uh, several years ago from a Dutch group in uh, Maastricht in which they showed that when a um, patient with type 2 diabetes um, were sitting in a cold room for six hours per day for 10 days, their, well, their glucose metabolism improved to a very large extent. Wow. So, some patients even could halve the amount of insulin after only 10 days. Um, wow. And that's that's likely part because the muscle really contributes, of course, to uptake of glucose. We have a lot of muscle. So that's also one of the beneficial effects of, uh, of cold beyond uh, brown fat. Wow, that's that's fascinating. And I guess, you know, all these different factors can contribute to a better uh, regulation of our weight overall, right? So uh, a bit of exercise, standing desks, cold exposure, fidgeting, some of the things that you mentioned in the book as well, as well as a healthy diet. You know, if you're, if you're shaving off like uh, a bit of energy every, uh, uh, cumulatively, you can see why that would result in quite drastic on changes. The long, on the long term, that can really have an impact. So there's also, but Lisbeth can tell more about that. There was a very interesting study about why we should not sit so much. Maybe Lisbeth <laughs> yeah. can tell more about that. That's so fascinating. Yeah, actually, actually, we often talk about okay, we should exercise uh, um, every day, resistance training, and and cardio uh, cardio exercise. 
Uh, but next to that, um, uh, it, it's a separate risk factor for cardiovascular disease and, and weight gain is, of course, sitting too much. And it's actually not, not so new. Why is this sedentary lifestyle also uh, so bad, actually? And I think a, a couple of years ago, indeed, in, in, in mice, there was a very interesting study. It has been confirmed in, in humans very recently, um, is that uh, as that somehow in our body there there are now uh, indications that we have a, what they call a graphitostat, which is regulation of our body weight uh, by a sensor uh, in in the bone cells of the legs. Um, and we, we until a couple of years ago we thought only leptin is the only marker of the amount of fat we have in the body that signals to the brain. And if the, there is a lot of leptin, then it signals to the brain, okay, decrease your food intake, increase metabolism. Problem in obesity is that people are resistant for that leptin and this, this whole system is being disturbed. It's not working properly. Um, but now next to the leptin system, there's another system being de detected that in the bone cells, there, there seems to be a sensor and, and that like seems to be a weight scale to uh, detecting how much we weigh and that communicates to our brain. And if we are, for example, very heavy, it communicates to our brain, okay, in, uh, decrease food intake, increase metabolism. And with this hypothesis, what they detected in, in, in mice researchers a couple of years ago, was in uh, last year, it was described by Olsen and, and colleagues um, that they performed a research with 69 persons with obesity, body mass index between 30 and 35. And they gave them, they split the group in two and one group has to, to carry uh, a vest, which was about 11% uh, of their body weight. So, so the heavy vest and the other half of the group was carrying a, 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 a sort of placebo vest with only 1% of their body weight. They carried it for three weeks long, eight hours a day. Um, I think what was very interesting is after this time, there was more weight loss in the group with a heavy fast. Um, and particularly, they lost more body fat, purely body fat. With And they kept their muscle mass intact. And that's important because we don't want to lose weight. If you have obesity, you don't want to lose weight. You want, want to lose fat and you want to keep your muscle mass because that protects you from weight, weight regain on the long term. Um, so from these experiments, they concluded that also in humans is probably we have such a weight skill in the in, in the in the bone cells of the legs, and that could also maybe explain that when when we sit all day, then this this weight skill in the in the legs uh, is is sort of tricked with is thinking we are too light, we are not heavy enough, we have to increase food intake and to decrease our metabolism as a protective mechanism. So that might be one an explanation. I, I think of this. This is made uh, this research of major importance, and we will hear about it more. And maybe in the future, one of the ways to lose weight would be to carry a couple of hours a day of fast. Um, of course, don't do it yet because we have to. It should be studied whether you don't have too much weight in your 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 get pain in your shoulders or anything. But this is one of the healthy ways of losing weight because. Losing weight, what we see now in our patients in the office, it's it's really hard. And because this body has become reprogrammed, so we need all these uh, alternative mechanisms to lose weight. Um, maybe if, if we talk about also this, this how to lose weight, I think it's always important 
to 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 in, when we look at the patient what are all the factors which had contributed also to to, to the weight gain because we often assume it's 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 only uh, unhealthy lifestyle and and yes it's it's a uh, lot of the times it's it's a really important cause but basically there are six six um, categories of uh, contributing factors or causes of obesity so lifestyle is one of it but then we have also mental causes um like chronic stress or depression or psychotrauma um, we have um, medication-related uh, obesity. Um, we found in a study that about half of the patients we saw in our obesity center was using at least one or more uh, medications with a potential uh, side effect of weight gain. Um, some are very common medication like antidepressants, uh, antihypertensives, anti-diabetic uh, medication, or, or corticosteroids, for example, are widely used. And so that's category three. Category four is hormonal uh, causes like hypothyroidism, uh, polycystic ovarian syndrome, or more rare things uh, exist. And then you have category five and six, and it's more rare, like hypothalamic uh, causes. People are very hungry because their hypothalamus is being disturbed. That's a rare cause. And then the monogenic or syndromic obesity. And we thought that would be also very rare. But what we notice now, if you do proper research and, and you do proper diagnostics in the office, that we found in obesity centers, um, uh, four to maybe even eight, nine uh, percent of the people have uh, a mutation in an obesity gene. So one obesity gene uh, which can directly lead to, to obesity. For example, a person who has a defect in the leptin signaling system, they are have increased hung, hunger from uh, early age on. So they have early onset obesity, uh, um, very hungry. And most of the time, they're they the only one in the family. They, have an, uh, they, they are a striking weight difference with fam family members. That's the alarm symptom. And if you look at all these causes, then you can be much more effective with your therapy uh, because sometimes when a person has a genetic obesity, then, then you need medication. If it's lifestyle obesity, you need lifestyle intervention. And only if it's not effective, then you need pharmacotherapy to, to, or, or bariatric surgery to, to be really effective. But when someone has a psychotrauma, for example, you need sometimes psychotherapy. And when you use medication with a weight gaining side effect, you need to um, try to optimize the therapy. And sometimes you can taper down together with a physician. The patient should not, never do that alone. But sometimes you can replace medication or you can taper down medication. And then you, uh, all kinds of therapies for obesity will be much more effective than when, when you do it um, when you're still having three medications uh, inducing weight gain. So there's so many ways we can do better in treating people with obesity. Because if we really want to, to, to combat obesity, we should do better treatments and, of course, the prevention. So now basically the water tap is open and the bath is full and we should close the water tap so to prevent more people developing overweight or obesity. So healthy food environment, healthy supermarket, healthy schools, exercise, all that. 
and at the same time the people who already have obesity so the bath is full to unplug the bath and to treat well with combined lifestyle intervention and if necessary pharmacotherapy or uh, a bariatric surgery so weight reducing medication is often also indicated but often not reimbursed which is not a good thing right now Absolutely. There's so much I want to unpack there. So, so we started off with the, the incredible uh, research around sensors in bone cells and how they can contribute to uh, appetite regulation and metabolism as well, I think, which is super, super interesting. And then I guess um, one thing to take from that is, you know, standing, trying to be less sedentary anyway, we know has positive effects. And that might explain one of the mechanisms behind why that is the case as well. So again, an additional contributive factor. Um, and then one of the things I wanted to unpack was the genomic component. And I think traditionally, certainly myself, I would have thought that would have been a minority uh, reason as to why people are putting on weight so drastically but i guess you know if it's four to nine percent of people who have a gene variant that puts them at higher risk of uh, weight gain that's you know one in 20 one in 15 uh, yeah we people. actually don't know at population level because most of the obesity centers are not studying how uh, uh, not looking for the genetic variants uh, but when we looked at people who were seeking help in obesity centers, so that might be a selection of the people with the highest BMIs, though, uh, they at least were struggling with obesity from the several centers in the Netherlands. Um, and we, we, we studied 1,230 patients. And from that group, we found uh, four to even maybe 9% having such a mutation. Uh, so that was rather impressive. So to detect it, just ask the questions, when did, did the obesity occur? Was it at early childhood or was it on a later age? So when it was early, it's more suspicious for it. Is is there a normal feelings of satiety? Are you normally feeling full or are you never feeling full or you're increased hungry? That's an alarm symptom and striking weight difference with the family members. Because when everybody in the family is, is obese, then it's more often either polygenetic risk uh, that, uh, that that's more normal, like we all have, uh, or it's uh, food environment or exercise environment, environmental factors, for example. That, that's uh, most common. Yeah, yeah, that, that is a really good way of structuring it as well. And I, and I guess it brings me to a question about um, how we uh, measure and monitor weight in general, because right now we use BMI, as a crude measure in general practice in the UK, it's falling out of favor, but really we should be looking at body composition. Um, are there ways in which you think we could use body composition measures in a more effective way that can scale across healthcare services? Yeah, that's exactly the problem you, you're addressing right now. We had some discussions with it also at, at Europe level last week about this. And, and BMI is an easy measure, but really not good at a positive marker, as you, you suggest. And a simple way which could be applied in, in, in clinical practice would to add the weight circumference, at least. Um, of course, there are more sophisticated methods like using a DEXA scan or other scans, but it's more it's, it's too expensive to do on, on a population level. So to use the waste would be uh, important. And of course, also look at all the comorbidities, like high, is there a high blood pressure, is the cholesterol levels high, how's the insulin and, and glucose regulation, um, because the, those are also symptoms of too much fat. You mentioned these six categories. 
uh, as to, to why people put on weight. One of them I wanted to talk about was the biological effect. Um, so the biological clock and fat and how that influences appetite and sugar regulation. Um, Met Maria, is that something uh, uh, you could talk about? Yeah, well, indeed the biological clock. So every um, body cell um, basically has its own little biological clock. Um, we have a central biological clock in our brain that, well, is sort of um, yeah the boss on all the little biological clocks in our other cells. And there's a very clear um, rhythm uh, within our body. Um, so, and this is um, uh, dictated by um, uh, the fact when it gets uh, light and when it gets dark again. So the, by the eyes, uh, the light can... Um, tell the biological clock in our brain whether it is day or whether it is night so a certain uh well you can imagine that when it is day we are more active when it is night we are sleeping when it is day um certain processes should be very efficient uh, because we are moving a lot we are seeking for food we are processing uh, food and during the night we are sleeping we should digest our food etc you can imagine that when you turn around this rhythm by, for instance, um, doing night shifts, you can um, disturb this um, very well um, uh, performed uh, rhythm in our body. And that's also what we see in practice that people who uh, uh, do a lot of night shifts, um, they are generally um, uh, fatter, they have more type two diabetes. Um, there are also some very nice epidemiological studies, uh, for instance, a very large study um, that show that when you uh, leave on a, a light in your room at night, um, that you are a bit fatter as well. So this, this biological clock oh, wow. is very important and you can, wow. you can also disturb that, it seems, uh, by eating at the wrong time points. So, of course, our body, when, when you get up, um, um, well, you, you 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 start eating of course uh, but when you um, eat during the whole day and also during the night some people do that that can also um, disturb the little clocks in for example your um, your pancreas who has to um, uh, uh, secrete insulin all the time it can disturb your muscle of course um, and that seems to be also important um, and what what's what's also I think something that should not be underestimated is uh, sleep quality. Um, so, well, I know from my own experience, actually, how, how killing it can be if you are sleep deprived, for instance, when you have little children. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this, is, this is quite, it, this can be harsh. I think everybody can relate to uh, mentally, but it can also make you more fat because we know um for instance, again, from epidemiological studies that people who have uh, fewer hours of sleep um, are more likely to have um, uh, obesity, uh, diabetes, and also cardiovascular diseases. And this is already seen even with um, sleep duration shorter than six or seven hours. Um, there, we, we also know from studies that already one night of disturbed sleep, it makes you very hungry. And it makes you also crave for more unhealthy food during the next day. So that can also result in more weight gain. This is something that I, really interests me because I'm fascinated uh, uh, by healthcare professionals' environment and how they have a propensity to uh, be high, of a higher weight than uh, people who don't work in the healthcare profession. And I believe it's 
a lot to do with a sleep uh, patterns and shift patterns, but also the food environment in which we operate. Because I don't know what it's like in 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 uh, in Rotterdam, but uh, we only have vending machines available to us in the middle of the night. Uh, we don't really have healthier options in the hospital environment, which needs to change regardless. Uh, but I think these are all things that are contributing to that. Um, and, and and this just adds more more evidence to it. Yeah, I, I, I think you're absolutely right. I think that, that some of the things that, that people also healthcare work is working in night shifts, that they these vending machines with unhealthy food, it's really deleterious. Of course, you, you want to, to maybe to help them to that, that there is some extra food available, but I think it's so necessary to have healthy food in there because also recently new studies came out, for example, if you eat your evening evening meal, your dinner, not at six or seven o'clock, but or ten or eleven o'clock, that there is major difference in the glucose tolerance uh, afterwards during night. In all kinds of mechanisms uh, are starting in the body, which are making you more prone to gain weight. And if you're already sleep deprived and you eat at the, the wrong moment, it's sort of a double hit. The sleep de- deprivation dysregulates your hunger hormones, just as Mariette mentioned, increased ghrelin, decreased leptin, but also your stress system activates or more cortisol, so you're more longing for high caloric foods, uh, more abdominal obesity can, can occur, all these tiny things. And of course, one time might not be the difference, but if you have continuous night shifts or, or uh, work often late, or you just eat later, too late at night. If a lot of people ask about fasting, should I do intermittent fasting? And well, there are many times of intermittent fasting, for example. But the, the 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 best would be to eat in the morning well and 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 not at night. So if you do would like to fast, do it after take an early dinner and fast afterwards evening and night. If you do that, will you b- will be fine. You don't have to deal with all kinds of weird schedules, probably. Of course, we we need more longer term studies, but to to adjust to the natural biological clock is is important. Agreed. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, Professor, I know that you've got a an international meeting after this, so I want to be quite mindful of your time. But I did want to ask you about two things actually that I I thought were fascinating in the book. There's one you've already alluded to: the hidden weight contributors, particularly medications that we use um, in the category of. Um, uh, immune modulators, prednisolone, uh, inhalers as well, as well as the other medications that could also contribute that people don't, wouldn't really think about. And then I have to ask you about uh, viruses and obesity because uh, I, 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 that kind of blew my mind about this adenovirus potentially being one of the uh, reasons as to why people put on weight as well. But um, why do we start with the, the hidden weight contributors in the form of medications? Yeah, I think that's that's probably something we need a lot to, to know a lot more about because what we see is that many people are using um, medication especially people with obesity um, and for example the corticosteroids is, is one of the group which can be really we know if you use high dose of prednisone and most people know well that, that's a sister actually uh, of, of your your stress hormone cortisol so it's like if you use 20 fold or 30 fold of your stress hormone cortisol you can imagine that your weight will will uh, increase especially abdominal fat will increase and all the negative side effects with respect to cardiometabolic factors cholesterol insulin um, mood disorders can occur but it's a long-term high dose we didn't know 
what will happen with just lower dosages, for example, and um, if you use that for a long time. And more and more relations seem to be uh, existing between, for example, use of inhalation medication and obesity. We don't know yet whether it's causally related. It's important to stress because those are association studies. But we found in really large studies now that males and females who were using, for example, nasal sprays with corticosteroids or inhalation medication, for example, for asthma, did have an increased uh, BMI. A little bit higher in BMI, but also a little bit higher waist circumference. Um, and important is what, what we what another study showed that people with obesity that half of them and, and with obesity and asthma, for example, that half of the people don't have the allergic asthma, but they have more in asthma like symptoms which are obesity related. So you can actually question whether this corticosteroid use is necessary. And in those cases we always discuss discuss with your pulmonologist or your GP whether has there been lung function tests, is it really an allergic asthma, do you really need a corticosteroid? If yes, you should continue. And sometimes the dosage can be tapered. Um, but also, in, if it's not, uh, sometimes it, it can be stopped and it might be beneficial for weight. We don't know yet, but there are more and more indications suggesting that. So never stop on your own, of course, always discuss with your doctor. Um, and this applies to more, uh, what we found in people with obesity, for example, 27% is using corticosteroids in any way. And we had some examples also in our clinic. For example, I had a man who, who was using corticosteroids cream, but really large dosages on a, his whole body for a very severe eczema. And, um, and actually he was gaining weight 30 kilograms in one year time, and he was living a healthy life. Uh, and and I, I remember when he came into the office and his wife really confirmed, well, I'm cooking healthy every day and we are we are walking every day. How come he's gaining 30 kilograms again uh, in one year time? And then when I t talked to his dermatologist and we replaced uh, the, the creams by weight neutral creams, actually his weight 35 kilograms decreased with the same healthy lifestyle. His mood improved. Um, uh, that was really impressive. And 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 the the strange thing was actually also his skin disease was improving somehow. So it's, it's sometimes really good to to take out people from this vicious circle to see what are all the contributing factors. And not always it's of course medication, and sometimes it cannot be stopped, like for example antipsychotic medication. But we should have attention that if there's a weight gaining side effect, that we help people to live healthy lives, to, to start a lifestyle intervention. And if that's not enough to, to administer, for example, um, anti-obesity uh, medication, uh, because it's so important for all the other diseases which can occur due to the obesity later on. Um, and well, medication is a serious factor in that. And To be effective, it's it's good to have a screen before referring a person to to a lesser intervention or other therapies. Is there what which medication is 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 potentially contributing to your weight gain? Yeah, yeah, I, that's a fascinating anecdote actually. I, I and I think again it 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 speaks to the complexity of of why people put on weight, why people suffer with disease as well. And I think there's definitely a lot of overlap between a healthy lifestyle and improvements across a number of different areas of, of medicine and, and, and health. Um, and 
like I alluded to, the uh, the other sort of hidden um, contributors to to weight. One one of them I, I remember reading was um, about products in our uh, food, um, so plastics, endocrine disrupting uh, chemicals, things that I haven't really looked at in much depth. Uh, I'll be honest. We are getting an epidemiologist actually to talk about the impact of plastics uh, on on general well being, but uh, w- with particular reference to. Uh, obesity. I understand that some of them do contribute to insulin resistance. Is is that something you've come across, Marriott? Well, yeah. In, indeed, it seems that that certain uh, components from from uh, from plastics end up in our food. We 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 ingest it, and um, it 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 could affect our, uh, our our body fat. We know at least we know most uh, from mouse uh, studies to be honest and we know that these um, uh, these uh, plastic components for example um, bpa um, it can also end up in our fat and somehow changes the way uh, that fat is stored that it makes the fat more prone to 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 store the fat and it may also influence our um, our our appetite um, as is shown in mouse studies in humans, we do know that these um, uh, BPAs can enter um, can can end up in our body fat. We know that from biopsies, and that it is uh, found more in, um, in in fat from uh, people with obesity compared to lean people. But we are not sure whether this is a causal relationship. Of course, it can also be well. People uh, who have who are living with obesity, they do have larger fat cells. Uh, we, we we don't know if it's causal yet. But to be sure, and I, I think we should be glad about that, um, uh, of course, um, we should be careful about that. And there are certain regulations now, uh, so we don't uh, take uh, any risks. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, and the, the, the adenovirus. Uh... Yeah, that is very <laughs> fascinating as well. Well, also, that is um, mostly asso- associated. Uh, from from the study, so um, you are referring to the adenovirus 36. Um, we do know that in um, the uh, that about a third of the people with obesity have this virus, while only about 10 percent of lean people have this virus. So you can think, well, maybe um, having this virus could have contributed uh, to part of uh, the obesity. Of course, we don't know the causal relationship in humans. This is at least a fascinating um, discovery. What we do know is that you infect um, chicken, for example, or, or monkeys with this virus, um, they gain a lot of weight. Mm. Um, and we are not really sure how. It, it also seems that the, the fat tissue of these animals um, uh, are more prone to store the fat. It doesn't seem that there are um, effects on, on, on metabolism or on, on, on appetite. So this, is, uh, this should be further discovered. But it's a, a fascinating discovery uh, indeed. Yeah, and, and actually a, a vaccine now is being developed for this potentially fattening adenovirus 36 to help prevent obesity. So maybe that's something we will hear more about in the future. Wow. Wow. The, yeah, that, that's definitely uh, one to watch. And I think the um, the uh, potential for vaccine technology in obesity is very, very exciting. Um, I, I want to ask you about uh, new developments. But before, I, I was really... Um, really impressed that you talked to about uh fat shaming and the other psychological consequences of weight in the in the healthcare industry and how there are disparities in access to healthcare 
Can you speak to a bit about uh, that uh, in terms of what we see from people whose uh, experiences of healthcare have been poor as a result of the way they look? Yeah, well, in general, so maybe it's good to mention what, what fat shaming uh, mm. is. So it, it mm. means that that people think that people with obesity are well, less capable of, 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 of um, performing a good job, that they are uh, dumber, that they have less willpower, for instance. I think it is very clear from what we told uh, during this podcast that since obesity is so complicated, this is, of course, far from the case. But what, what is really striking to us is that this fat shaming not only um, happens in, in, in the, well, I call it general public, but it also happens in healthcare. And I think that is because of a lack of knowledge on the complexity of obesity. Maybe it's not really that they have bad intentions, but it's just that a lack of, of, of knowledge. So we know that people who work in healthcare also tend to believe that obesity is someone's own fault and that they just should eat less and, and should exercise more. And that is frequently the advice that is given to, uh, uh, to patients who uh, seek help uh, when they have obesity. Um, I even know a patient who was told by her doctor to lose weight before getting a large surgery. But the reason she became obese was because of the corticosteroids that the same doctor prescribed. And that really, um, well, that was really harsh for her. And I think that another problem is also in healthcare that um, certain diseases are not always properly identified in people um, with obesity. So certain complaints, it is easily said, well, it's probably because of the obesity and that they are, well, that they get less good care um, as a consequence of that. Yeah, I feel like we've come full circle in our conversation about the way we uh, treat people who look a different way, who are overweight uh, in terms of how it was traditionally seen as something that was respectable and something that is aspirational to now something that is uh, demonized and can actually be at the detriment of people's uh, healthcare access. Um, your book goes into so much more detail and you, you go into patient stories and, you know, we've really just scratched the surface, even though we've tucked off so many different subject matters today. Um, and you go into a bit more of the lifestyle, uh, elements as well, but I wonder if there are any new developments that you wanted to mention that you didn't put in the book, uh, because of time constraints. We mentioned some already during the podcast. For example, the, the study on, on, on the weight scale and the lags was uh, briefly in the book also mentioned in, in mice, but it has been detected in humans, for example. Okay. We will save some, of course, for possibly for our next book. Oh, epic. Yeah, no, I'd love to see that. I wonder what the sequel would be called. <laughs> I think every day there are new developments and we're following the literature literally uh, very much for our patients, but also for the science we're performing, but also for the society roles we fulfill. So we are, we are keeping up with the science and we are, we are indeed intending to write a second book on it. Amazing. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for your time. And thank you so much for the work that you guys are doing. It's super important. And, you know, you're heightening people's awareness of just how complicated this issue is. Uh, and it's not as simple as calories in, calories out, you know, exercise more, eat less. Um, and it's, you know, your research that is really driving forward a greater understanding uh, of, of this complex disease. And it is certainly a disease. So thank you so much uh, for your work and, and your time today. 
You're very welcome. It was lovely to be here. Yeah, thank you so much for the nice question. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to today's podcast. You can find all of the resources and links to their incredible book on thedoctorskitchen.com forward slash podcast. Do sign up to the newsletter where I share something to eat, read, or listen to every single week to help you live a healthier, happier life. And I will see you here next time. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 